What an enjoyable opportunity it is to come together again this, this afternoon. Perhaps at the outset of the lesson, I might take the liberty to make a comment or two. I thought that the meeting that we had this afternoon was a very upbeat, a very positive meeting. The tone of the meeting very much centered on the, how we could use the resources of this congregation in the best possible way. It's certainly a very comforting thing to see our eldership and even all the men present with the earnest desire to do that very thing. And I believe I would feel safe in saying all the others present would share those same set of sentiments. But how lovely it is, and you'll be hearing many more things on the coming weeks perhaps about the kinds of mission work that's being supported, the other works that are being involved in in terms of our monies. So again, if you have uh, questions about any of those things, feel free to ask one of our elders. But I thought the meeting was a very successful one, very upbeat one, and certainly the idea set forth very, very comforting and also very exciting at the same time. This evening, we will consider the second installment in that set of lessons that I began last Lord's Day evening that attempt to make a consideration of the Bible on the one hand and science on the other. It is such an unfortunate circumstance that in our modern era, those so often are presented as being confrontational. They are presented as being those things that are contradictory. As we sought to learn last Lord's Day evening, they are in no sense contradictory. That opening lesson was in fact an attempt to use the Word of God to help us see that God's Word is the final authority in all matters that it touches, be it things that are spiritual or even things that are physical. And so when the Bible, in the concourse of presenting truth, touches on things that fall under the purview of science, one can rest assured that the statements that are made are absolutely and identically correct. We even began to see, amazingly, that science over the years that have followed have come to realize by its own discoveries the things that the Bible proclaimed hundreds and even thousands of years ago. We, in the course of this series of lessons, will attempt to note some of those things, and tonight the subject will be that of astronomy. What does the Bible relate to and share with us about the nature of the Holy Scriptures as it touches that interesting and somewhat enthralling subject of astronomy? Some introductory thoughts that I've listed on this page would be in order to first remind us of some of those things that we saw last Lord's Day evening, but also to lead us in the objective to see that beautiful and amazing set of facts that helps us have even greater confidence in this book. In fact, I would suggest that's one of the ways that you and I can know that this book is not the product of humanity, that it is not the mere thing that humans have written. If what one finds in this, in terms of scientific fact, is something that was written, again, perhaps 2,000 or more years prior to science discovering it, would that not be strong evidential proof that humankind did not write it? And yet, that's the very thing that we shall come to appreciate in the course of our study tonight. When we begin to discuss the subject of astronomy, I might point out that we should begin by at least thinking about the nature of that subject itself and then turning more interestingly to the Bible and what it has to say about it. And so, with that idea before us, what does it mean to discuss astronomy? The very word itself points out what is being discussed. The word astronomy is a composition of two words from ancient languages. On the one hand, there's the word 
astron, which means star. The word nomos means law or arrangement. It would thus seem that the very subject of astronomy has to do with the arrangement or the law of the stars. In fact, consulting a dictionary, that's precisely what one is involved in studying. Webster's Dictionary describes astronomy as this, the science of the heavenly bodies. I suspect all of us have recognized the amazement and the astounding character of peering into the heavens on a clear night and seeing the array of stars and planets and the various other things that are so wonderful to appreciate and to imagine the vastness of that outer space that's before us. As amazing as all of that is, one can't help but begin to wonder about the features and details and specifics and aspects of it. Who fashioned it and how is it sustained? There is a very notable subject within the confines of astronomy. It's known as cosmology that seeks to ask the questions about the origin of all of that. And what's more, what about its destiny? I might submit to you that it is a pathetic shame that so much of that study is misguided because it is founded on a faulty foundation. The only foundation, as we learned last week, is a foundation of utter truth. What about turning our attention to questions like that this evening? In order to do that, I might point out the very word that I mentioned a moment ago. We shouldn't overlook it. That word nomos, which means law or arrangement, the very nature of astronomy hints the fact that there is a law that undergirds and is used to describe the motion of these heavenly bodies. It is not a chaotic arrangement. It is not a happenstance presentation. In fact, the word law, the word arrangement, suggests that there is an incredible amount of design that goes into that. The specificity is remarkable. The mathematical ingenuity behind it is something that any student of science at the high school level or above likely gains at least a bit of appreciation of. I might point out, even at this early stage in the lesson tonight, does the Bible hint that there is a law in operation with regard to the heavenly bodies? Perhaps we could look at Jeremiah 31, verse 35. In that major prophet of the Old Testament, God, through Jeremiah, made this rather interesting statement. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Might we take interesting observation that he said there is an ordinance to the stars and the moon. And that ordinance denotes the word statute, the word precept, the word law. There is a law of regularity. And those astronomers and other scientists throughout the ages, such as Kepler that we mentioned last Lord's Day evening, who was a devout believer in the truth of the Bible, no wonder as he looked into the character and the data of the heavenly bodies, his goal was to see the fingerprints of God in it and to try to appreciate the mathematical law in place, descriptive of the motion of those bodies. That's a breathtaking exercise, isn't it? Even today, when students, at least I hope their teachers, would help them come to appreciate it, when they study things like Newton's law of gravitation, young person, don't see that as an arbitrary law. 
see in that the recognition of a simple expression that is the expression of God's divine ordinance and will with regard to those heavenly bodies used to describe the motion of everything from the sun to the earth to meteors, planets, and everything else. It is a marvelous thing to consider. It has well been noted by some scientists that when you and I are able to appreciate laws like that, we're reading God's handiwork in what he accomplished. But not only that, in Psalm 136, verse 8, the psalmist may note that the sun rules by day. There is a statement of the rulership or the ruling activity of that sun we appreciate so much in the daylight hours of, of the daytime. Those recognitions perhaps point us to what the human family has been able to accomplish. Now, it's again a tragedy that so few scientists in the field of astronomy might directly give the credit in the, where it's due. But stop to ponder that scientists can, with an equation, predict when the next lunar eclipse will be. They can predict when the next solar eclipse will occur. And in 1969, we set a man on the moon using mathematical equations about the earth, the moon, and the character of what must be necessary to arrive there safely and to return here. Think about how wonderful that was just as an idea of man being able to discover and learn what God has put in place. This universe is a marvelous testimony to the intelligence and the power of the God of heaven. To say all of that is perhaps to appreciate that there is so much more, though, that could be said. Might I point your attention to some notes about these facts and ideas, some notes that I hope will be a little on the interesting side to help us even look into God's Word more fully. Let's revisit for a moment that notion of law. The law of the stars, the very meaning of the word astronomy, does law come about by itself? Can law create itself? Did the United States Constitution write itself? Did the Tennessee State Constitution author itself? The answer is self-evident, isn't it? Even a kindergartner would know the answer to that question. That leads to another question. If there is a law in the heavens descriptive of the motion of these stars, planets, and other heavenly bodies, who was the lawgiver? Who was the designer? Now, those in the scientific community will be rather quick to say, at least some of them, there was no designer. It happened by a matter of evolutionary happenstance, and this universe is nothing but a freak accident, and so are you and I. Now again, the question stands. Law is in existence in regard to the motion of those heavenly bodies. Who was the lawgiver? In what way was that law set about and provided? I might suggest that the rational human beings that we are, by the gift and mercy and grace of the God of heaven, would lead us to say that if there is law, there must have been a lawgiver. If there is design, there must have been a designer. In fact, even the Scriptures assert that same idea. In Hebrews 3 verse 4, in the heart of the New Testament, the Hebrew writer pointed out that every house is built by some man. A house doesn't build itself. It doesn't come about by accident. It is still the case, isn't it, that a tornado cannot sweep through a lumberyard and construct a house. It takes a designer 
the intelligence to make use of a blueprint to construct using the resources at hand that structure and edifice. If there is design in the universe, there must have been a designer. Every house is built by some man, the Hebrew writer said. Might we point out with some passages who the Bible says that designer was. In the opening verse in all of the Holy Word of God, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. At the outset of all things, we find the constructive handiwork of the intelligence of God. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are made were not made of things which do appear. To quote Hebrews 11 verse 3, you see it is a realization. And notice the appreciation of design demands a designer. By faith we now know who the designer is. It's God, the supreme, the almighty, the awesome one that inhabits the glorious climes of heaven. Notice some other passages, if you would, along that same line. The psalmist affirmed in Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the, sun, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Who was the psalmist speaking about? He was speaking about God. Notice, which thy fingers have made. The glorious nature then of the vastness of this universe is again a realization and a constant reminder to us of how great God really is. But notice something else in some other passages, if you would. In Psalm 19, verse 1, which, well, that which was read just a few moments ago, we notice there that the psalmist declared that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Isn't that a reminder that God made all of this and that this universe was fashioned by Him with all of its specifics? Later we notice in Job 26 verse 13, even there the rather beautiful and elegant statement is made that God garnished the heavens. We may think about garnishing a plate on a table to beautify and make it appear lovely. God garnished these heavens. We now have at our disposal telescopes that can take some breathtaking pictures. Scientists can peer into the heavens and truly the colors that one sees are dramatically amazing. God garnished these heavens. They are the imprint of the beauty of His nature and the impressive character of what He has allowed the human family to appreciate. But to say that is also to say this. If God fashioned the heavens, what purpose then did He have for them? What about the purpose for all the heavenly bodies in the vastness of this universe? If God made them, He has every right to dictate the purpose and every right to determine what shall be accomplished by it. I would ask you to notice some considerations relative to that same idea as we ponder the nature of the purpose. Genesis 1.14 explains the purpose of all of these things. That's the opening chapter in all the Bible. Genesis 1 verse 14. It takes us back to the fourth day of God's creative activity. On day one, light had been fashioned and made and created. Day number two had been the firmament. Day number three had been the dry land appeared. The waters were brought together in a place and vegetable or plant life also was brought into existence. When we come to day four, 
We often simply comment that the sun, the moon, and the stars were fashioned by God on that day, and that's correct. But the purpose was stated in the very nature of those ideas. Let's read verse number 14 of Genesis 1. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the light, or rather the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. We have the purpose for the extent of the creation on that day. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Notice we might first appreciate the nature of for signs, seasons, the division of the day from the night. We're aware even now if we look out the window that darkness surrounds us. Whereas earlier in the day it was light. Those heavenly bodies that we are so able to see at night, the stars that are not visible in the daytime due to the strength of the light from the sun. There is a division, a natural one set in place early in God's creation. Might we still remember today that the division of the day is not a human invention. It was God's invention. He put the nature of the 24-hour day in place. And the division of it into light and dark was God's business. Today, that is still, of course, maintained by you and by me as a very real framework in the part of human civilization. But also note that in that same text, we notice that four signs is mentioned. What would be the signs related to these heavenly bodies? Might I point out two different signs seem to be revealed in the Holy Scriptures. One would be the physical aspect of them. The absolute nature that these are God's handiwork and they are a sign of His masterpiece. For more than once in the Bible, it is stated that God made those stars. And when we see them, we shouldn't merely think of their beauty. We should think of who made them and who sustains them and who maintains their orderly activities in their orbits. For later in Hebrews 11, verses 2 and 3, we read that the one who sustains and upholds all of the creation, that includes what happens here and what happens there, is none other than the Son of God Himself. But that only points to the spiritual signs, sometimes able to be seen in the heavenly bodies. Perhaps we can point out that those spiritual signs are hinted at several times in the Scriptures. In Joshua 10, beginning in verse 12, we there come face to face with a time when the moon and the sun stood still for a whole day. God maintained and held them in place until Joshua's victory over the Amorites was complete. Do we not see a sign then that should have been evident to all of who is in control of those things? Later in the lifetime of Hezekiah, in Isaiah 38, we are reminded again that there the sundial was turned back 10 degrees. Who was able to move the sun back or to rotate the earth in the opposite direction in the way that it normally would rotate? God was able to do that, and that He did, lengthening the day by 40 minutes. Isn't that lovely to appreciate the grandeur and power of the God of heaven? No wonder that it is stated that His power is limitless, that all things are within His control. Job declared in Job 42:2, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withheld from thee. 
That kind of idea perhaps leads us even to the scene of the Savior's birth. Might we remember there was a star from the east that those wise men followed. And that star led them directly not only to the general area, but over where the Savior was in existence there in that manger in Bethlehem. Who was in control of that star? It wasn't a comet, as some scientists who attempt to be believers in the Bible would say. For no comet would hold its place in space for any length of time at all, for it must ever be in motion by the gravitational considerations of it. That was the power of God working a miracle in regard to the motion of that star. The interesting features and facts of all of that help us see that what about for seasons? These heavenly bodies as they relate to the seasons. Perhaps if you're aware of some of the things that you see in the stars, there are various constellations. And scientists have given them any number of names. There's the bear, and in fact those signs of the zodiac are named for them. There's Gemini and all sorts of others. But isn't it interesting that even the Bible makes reference to various conglomerations of stars. For instance, in Job 9, verse 9, even the ancient writer there, Job, made mention of Arcturus and Orion and the Pleiades, constellations that we still realize and appreciate today. As, as Job could make mention of them centuries before there was any such thing as a telescope, isn't it amazing to see the handiwork and mention of God in relation to these various stars? Later, even Amos made note again of Orion and even again of the Pleiades. All of that perhaps helps us also to see that the very mention of those things is a testimony to remind us that those constellations are only visible certain times. You see Orion in certain seasons of the year, and you see the Pleiades in others. Thus, they mark the seasons. They help us, even on earth, be appreciative of the glorious regularity in the movement of the heavenly bodies. Isn't it interesting that even Paul indirectly made mention of such things in Acts 27, where there in the midst of that two-week-long shipwreck, it says they could neither see those stars nor sun for that length of time. They became lost. Why? They navigated by usage of the directions of those constellations. One could tell north or tell other directions using the positions of those constellations. And when those were absent for so long, the ships and the mariners became lost and in fact lost their way. Those ideas maybe lead us to note a few other ideas before we come to the realization of some scientific foreknowledge in the Bible as it relates to astronomy. Might we not forget the last point in Genesis 1.14? It there also says, for days and for years. We, of course, mark the day by Earth's rotation. And we mark the year by realization of the Earth's revolutionary motion about the sun. God set those things in place. Again, that was not man's handiwork to orient the earth in that fashion. We can perhaps see again the wisdom and intelligence of God highlighted in so many considerations from the world of astronomy. But that isn't all we can learn from astronomy either. There are some things in the scriptures that relate to astronomy that in fact were housed in the Bible long before mankind in the scientific way of discovery came to learn them. 
Might I point out just a few of them to you? As one looks into the stars at night, on a clear night, and certainly the last few have been very clear and very cold, and one could see many, many stars. Question, how many stars are there? Mankind, I suspect, since almost the dawn of time, has wondered about the answer to that question. You and I, as students of the Bible, would have the answer to it. Now, let me be quick to perhaps present what I mean by that. Hipparchus, an ancient person who was a scientific person, said there's about 3,000 of them. And that was his estimate, and that was held by many for centuries to be about the number of the stars. Today, especially with the invent of the telescope, it is known that there are far, far more than 3,000. The current scientific estimate is about a trillion billion stars, 10 to the 21st power. Now, you and I, though, can turn back to the Bible and make some strong statements that would have led us in the direction far larger than 3,000 a long time ago. In fact, I've listed for you some texts to consider. In Psalm 147, verse number 4, the ancient writer, again writing a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, a thousand years B.C., the writer on that occasion affirmed that the number of the stars was exceedingly great, but it is not unlimited. Recognizing for us the power and might that God has named every one of them, they all have a name in the mind of God. And even in the early days of the book of Genesis, we see, and the book of Jeremiah will in fact repeat the same, that the number of the stars is likened unto the number of grains of sand on earth. Now certainly that number is not infinite, but it's more than the human family can number. We can't number the sand grains on planet earth. So too we are not able to identically state with direction and specificity that number of stars. It is more than man can number, but it is not infinite. There are those who think that the universe is infinite. The Bible says that it's not. Thus, when we studied the book of Genesis back in the fall of 2006 and began our study of the first few chapters, we too saw texts that taught us that the universe is not without extent. There is a limitation. There is an outer boundary to it. It's certainly a very, very far distance from earth, but it is not infinite. Those ideas from astronomy run contrary to what we will discuss in a moment. But it is nonetheless what the scriptures proclaim about these very ideas. But let's consider yet another astronomical teaching found in the Bible. If one takes a telescope and points it in the direction toward the North Star, the star Polaris, many times, of course, astronomers have done and are able to do that, one notes a rather conspicuous thing. The number of stars in that sector of the sky is far fewer than the number of stars in other sectors of the sky. Interesting, isn't it? I wonder if the Bible says anything about that. In Job 26, verse number 7, we find this statement from astronomy. If you have an interest in looking at the way in which the writer Job presents that information, Job 26, verse number 7, there are two astronomical facts in that one verse, and we shall look at the other one in a moment. But in the outset of it, this statement is made. He stretcheth out the north over the empty 
in the empty place. The empty place. Might I point out the telescope was not invented until the early part of the 17th century. And thus, from the time of the writing of the book of Job until the discovery of the telescope, well over 3,000 years elapsed, it would appear. And thus, isn't it amazing that housed in the very nature of the Word of God was an astronomical fact that man could not have known until many, many centuries later. Is there scientific foreknowledge in the Bible? There certainly is. But also, another interesting statement of astronomy. What does earth look like? Maybe you and I have been told stories how that in the ancient days of the long past, individuals thought that the earth was flat. They thought that it had corners and one could fall off if you got to the edge. In fact, prior to the year 4 BC, or the rather the 4th century BC, that was the common belief about earth. 4th century BC. I'd like us to go back in time long before that and ask what did God's word have to say about what earth looks like? Let's begin in Isaiah 40 verse 22. As we look in that very passage and an interesting one it is, we read the statement that the earth is there described in the following fashion, the circle of the earth. The circle of the earth. God's Word had presented the fact then long before the 4th century B.C. that the earth was round. Now, if we ask, when was the book of Isaiah written? About 750 B.C. Thus, over 300 years prior to those beliefs that the earth was flat, God's book had said the earth was round. It's a circle. And in Proverbs 8, verse 27, we find the writing of Solomon affirming that there is... In the King James word that appears there is the word compass. The Hebrew word literally means circle. Even Solomon affirmed about the circle of the earth. And the book of Solomon, that book of Proverbs, is written about 1,000 B.C. Thus, we notice that over 650 years earlier, the book of God had said that the earth was round. Is there scientific recognition then prior to astronomical discovery of it? In God's book there is. That's breathtaking, isn't it? It is astounding. But that isn't all. Let's look at yet another. What about the way the earth is supported? We each are aware day by day that things require support. I'm standing on a stage... So the stage supports and holds me up. But that stage is supported by the floor, which is supported by the foundation, which is supported by the ground. And so one can then ask, well, what's holding earth up? Many of the ancient societies had some rather unusual ideas about that. The ancient Babylonians thought that earth rested on the back of elephants. The ancient Egyptians thought it rested on the back of turtles. The ancient Greeks thought that this superhuman man named Atlas was holding it up. Of course, all that still begs the question that if true, then who was holding Atlas up? Or who was holding up the turtles or the elephants? God's Word had said all along in Job 26 verse 7 the following idea. He hangeth the earth upon nothing. What is it that supports the earth? God's book says he hung the earth on nothing. 
We now have learned since the days of Newton forward that there is this force we call gravity that holds the earth to the sun and maintains its orbit. And the same is the working force behind the movement of the other planets and comets and asteroids and galaxies as well. We can't see gravity, but we can see the results of it. God hung the earth on nothing. That's very different than to think about atlas and turtles and elephants. What had God's book said all along? Astronomically, it was a futile effort to look for what was supporting it. He hung it on nothing as far as the eye can see. And even now, isn't it amazing to look at those pictures of when those astronauts can turn their camera and take a picture of Earth and there's nothing holding it up. It maintains its orbit through space by the handiwork of God's creation of what we call gravity. But to say all that is perhaps to say that there's one more astronomical fact that we should perhaps bring to bear tonight. We have, in fact, hinted around this evening that so much of astronomy is laden with the ideas of evolution. You may have heard of the Big Bang presentation, how that some scientist will affirm that at the very outset there was all of matter and all of energy, at least they claim, bound into a very, very tiny region of space, far smaller than the period, we are told, at the end of a sentence. And at some point, all that exploded and has turned into the universe so full of all the galaxies and other things that we see today. I might submit to you that that runs counter to so many things that are taught in the Word of God. But just to note a few of them, I would ask you to consider these. Think about it only from the perspective of chronology for a moment. According to the Bible, we appreciate that the earth was fashioned before the sun. The earth God made on day one, the sun not until day four of that opening week. So the earth, from the point of view of the Bible, preceded the sun. Evolutionists, by relying on the Big Bang, would tell us the sun preceded the earth by millions and millions of years. Now, it can't be both ways. Either one of them is right and the other is wrong, or they're both wrong. You and I know the Bible's the one that's right. But not only that chronology. Think about the chronology of the stars in the earth. Again, they did not come along until day four, whereas the earth God fashioned on day one. Evolutionary considerations of the Big Bang would tell us the earth came along billions of years after the stars, at least in general. But again, notice the Bible says it was just the other way around. And in fact, the difference is only three days. The earth on day one, the stars on day four, three days difference is it. No more. That's an amazing consideration to see the contrast and the difference but look at yet another consideration. What about the sun and the plants? Of course, any biologist would have a bit of trouble with this one. You and I know that the plants were fashioned on day three, the sun on day four, and so the plants even preceded the fashion of the sun from the point of view of the Bible. Those who subscribe to evolutionary chronology would say the sun preceded the evolutionary development of plants by billions of years. Again, note how different God's book presents it. Perhaps finally we can ask, what about all the elements that make up our earth? We know we breathe in oxygen. 
We appreciate elements that we so use day by day, such as zinc and copper, helium and many others. We know that those who subscribe to evolution would say that they did not come about at the same time. There was a matter of development and transformation that led from the simple ones to the complex ones. The Bible says God fashioned all of that in a time frame of one week, and that's it. How different the Bible's presentation is than that of evolutionary considerations. These scientific things that we've just learned about briefly are just a sampling of others that could be found in the Word of God. The fact the earth is hung on nothing, the fact in that there's a scarcity of stars in the direction of the north, the fact of the number of the stars, all of that was found in the Word of God prior to science discovering it. That should help us see that this book was not written by men. God was the superintending force behind it. He was the author of it. In summary tonight to our lesson, it would be my trust that we've each been given a deeper appreciation for the Bible and astronomy. And specifically, the astounding character of it has just whetted our appetite as to what other scientific things might we see and study in the course of this series. And as we look at other various sciences and the disciplines and what the scriptures may say about them, time and again, we will learn that what was found in the Bible predated by, in many cases, centuries, scientific discovery of those things. This evening, as we note the design, I'd like to use that idea to close our lesson. Design. There could be no design without a designer. And so it is in the spiritual aspects of my life and yours. God has designed a plan of salvation. We in wisdom should humbly submit to that with immediacy and with haste, understanding that there is great danger in delay. Tonight, are you a faithful member of the body of our Lord? Do you lift high the character of Christ by the life that you live? Are others those who can see the nature of God's mercy, grace, and love through your faithful and humble obedience to the commandments of the Bible? If tonight you have never become a member of the body of Christ, it isn't left to human speculation to figure out how that's done. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His glorious name as God's only begotten Son. And then be immersed in water, baptized for the remission of sins. That could all be accomplished so very quickly. But by the same token, merely becoming a Christian does not by itself guarantee a home in heaven. For one must live faithfully until death. That commandment of Revelation 2.10 urges us then to appreciate that when we falter and fail, when we disgrace the Lord's name, we can come back and He will gladly welcome us to His side again in love. That also has a plan that goes with it. It involves the recognition on my part or yours that there's error in my life, for I must repent of that, believing again what the Scriptures teach concerning it, and in that repentance to confess those things and then prayer to be uttered on our behalf. If that needs to be accomplished tonight for you, wouldn't you let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing.